he was intrigued because he's busier than ever. And so I, I offered to work with him and he said, you know, let me see your work. And he saw it. He's like, dude, this is really good. Why don't you publish? And I said, because it's a lot harder than you might think in America here. Like it's, I'm not putting food on the table. And so he hired me. So I wrote like a series of novellas for him. He paid me like a thousand dollars and I'd whip one out, dude, in like two hours. So I was getting like $500 an hour for my work. So I wrote a bunch and they all became number one Amazon bestsellers and they went beyond like Stephen King. It was in the thriller horror genre. They're ahead of all like Stephen King, like all those other authors for like four months. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, relax your mind, and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Welcome back to the higher standard, friends. This week, I've got the amazing Alex Foster on the podcast. He is indeed a personal friend of mine, well above and beyond our working relationship. I actually met Alex because I started writing a book concept call it about a year and a half, two years ago. And I, I knew that I didn't have the skill set to get it to where it needed to be, where I wanted it to be. It's the higher standard, right? I always you know, want, want the best I can possibly do. And I knew in this instance, that required getting outside professional help. I looked for a ghostwriter. I found Alex. And in all the interviews that we did and the storytelling and, and, and the friendship that we built... He had such a fascinating story and little little nuggets that he he dropped in our in our conversations about all these experiences that he had, which seemed so just crazy and all over the place. They all kind of culminate in this experience that has made him such a robust and, and strong writer. And while he's coming up on some significant career milestones that I think are are definitely worthy of the success that he deserves, his story before that, which is what we get into here is so cool. It starts off slow because that's just Alex. These things aren't sensational to him. But just listen to the little nuggets he drops. And I don't want to spoil anything. I don't want to ruin some of the moments that he just drops on you. But this man has lived a great life and it's made him successful. He's another one of those people who have overcome his version of adversity to become the best version of himself. And I'm proud to call this man my friend. So I hope you enjoy Alex's story. We do this a lot. We talk all the time. It's part of what we do together. I'm just happy to share it. So, my friend, not too many people know what it is that you do for a living. As a ghostwriter, as an international man of mystery, I was hoping you could demystify it a little bit and, and tell us what exactly it is that you do and how you started doing it. All right, so you want me to tell the, the true version or the false version? Because the true version is that I, uh, I'm actually an arms dealer. I don't know that about me. No, but it's weird. You know, 80% of nonfiction books are 
in fact, ghostwritten by people like me. But eighty percent, eighty percent. That's a huge amount. So I like to tell people that a ghostwriter is someone who can walk in the shoes of another person and resume their stride perfectly. So they're kind of like the method actors of the the writing world. They they kind of like become the the story that they're telling or the client that they're telling it for. Is that hard to do? I mean, if, if you're talking to somebody you don't really know very well, right? Like, I mean, you're obviously helping me write, you know, my story. But, you know, if you, if you don't know somebody very well, and some of these people tend to be, I don't know, uh, a little different personalities. That, that's got to be difficult, right? Yeah, uh, not for me. I don't know. It's never been difficult for me. I was always that kid in school that would listen to everybody's problems. I was like the school shrink. You know, and so a lot of my friends, they would come to me with their issues and I would like kind of talk them through it. So my whole life, I've been kind of primed to become a good listener. And that's really important if you want to be a ghostwriter, because you have to have a certain level of empathy. You know, that's how you establish rapport with the client. You understand them on a really basic, fundamental level. And then you have to listen, like really, really listen. And that's never been an issue for me. That's never been very difficult, you know? So I think it's easy. So, I mean, but it's not just listening though, like, right? Like, so someone comes to you and they say, Hey Alex, I have this idea for a book or I want to write about some part of my life or maybe even just my life story. And then, you know, you schedule the interviews, you talk to them, but at what point do you start to kind of resonate with their personality and feel like you can, you can speak like them? Like how, how long does that take for you? Oh shit, you're, yeah, you bring up a good point. So that's the hard part. And that takes months, months and months and months, many meetings. And, you know, to establish that rapport and really understand that person, I like to usually fly out to wherever they are, hang out with them, go to their workplace, meet their family, have drinks with them. You know, as you know, I'm a very informal person. So one of my favorite ways to get to know someone is like going out to the local pub that they love and sitting down and having a round of drinks and just shooting the shit. And that's usually where I find the true like authenticity of the person, you know, when they're just like relaxed in a cool setting and they just kind of unload who they are. So you can't really do that though, over like zoom, which is how we we met and started doing. Yeah. Well, it's (laughs) rare, but we, we, for some reason established that rapport through a screen, like pretty easily, I'd say, but it's a pandemic too. And there was all sorts of weird, weird shit going on, but so, I mean, how many how many people do you think you've written you've written for? I mean, how many people how many people's minds have you gotten into like this so far, you think? Oh god. It's a frightening statistic, we think. Uh I'd say like 45 people now including you. Probably 45. I haven't written I haven't ghostwritten 45 books. Yeah, I've probably ghostwritten like 20 something books for clients, but I've also done like rewrites. So, I'll, I'll basically just go on a project and hack it all apart and make it better. So between rewrites and ghostwriting, yeah, I'd say like 45 people. That's a lot of writing. Were, were you a fan of writing when you were growing up or was that one of those things that, I mean, how did you get into ghostwriting? Because I know your backstory. It's kind of a weird story and it's a little long. Is that all right? Yeah, why not? All right. So I guess in the very, very beginning, I was like seven, eight years old and i I discovered my dad's like giant legal pad. He had one of those big yellow legal pads and I was really bored. It was like winter time and it was too cold to play outside. And that's really what I would do with my brothers. I play outside all the time. So here I was stuck in a house 
with my dad and all he does all day long pretty much is he <laughs> he watches movies which is why i have like a huge love of film so he would be off like watching movies with my brother and at one point i thought man what the hell like i want to write a story like i want to i want to create something with, with my own hands so i grabbed that legal pad and i started writing and i started writing in the morning and like dinner time came around my dad was like hey it's dinner time you got to come down and eat with us and i just didn't want to because i was so like I was so sucked into this story, like in my brain, in my mind, I was in this whole other universe. So I kept writing for the next couple of days. And by the end of it, I had like 33 pages, single spaced on this legal pad. So it was like, it was, if I were to type that up today, single spaced in Microsoft Word, I would do typical manuscript format. That would be, I don't know, probably like 75 pages or something, a 75 page novella. And so I wrote this story about Jack the Ripper of all people. Because I had this like little book about famous mysteries from the Victorian era or something like that. At that age, really? Yeah. At that age, I, I got started reading really young. And so I wrote a story about Jack the Ripper. I think my dad still has it. It's the first thing I ever wrote. So as the years progressed, you know, I've always been somewhat of an introvert. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote all the time. I wrote short stories. I started writing books when I was like 13, 14 years old. Uh, a lot of poetry, you know, and, and, uh, when I was in school, I, I fucking sucked at school. I mean, I did well, but I missed more school days than any other kid in my academy's history. And after like 25 missed days, you would get one point taken off all your grades. So yeah, I had a shitty GPA because I missed all those days. I did all my work. I, I got straight A's except for in math class and French, which I devoted entirely to reading novels. Anyway, the, the story is, I was a freshman in high school and all my friends were older than me. They were seniors. So um, I, I, know, I saw them boarding a bus. They were going to a college fair like three hours away. And, and uh, one of them saw me and they're like, Alex, you should, uh, you should jump aboard, you know, like, come on, come on the bus with me and uh, go to this college fair. And I was like, Hmm, I got nothing better to do. Sure. Let's do it. So I jumped on the bus and I sat right by the guidance counselor, Mr. Umphrey who is still a really dear friend to this day. He helped me monumentally become who I am as a writer. And I talked with him the whole way up, whole way back. I got so much knowledge in, in the college fair. And I got like 200 pamphlets I was never going to use because I already decided I was never going to go to school. But I, I talked with Mr. Humphrey the whole time about literature, about books, our favorite books. So anyway, we're on our way back from this amazing day that I had. And uh, one of the, the, one of the people on the bus recognized me. Her name was Angela. And she looked at me and she said, Alex, what are you doing on the bus? You're not a senior. You're a freshman. And I was like, oh shit. And Mr. Humphrey just like slowly turned from Angela to me. And he said, is that true? And I said, you know what, Mr. Humphrey? It is true. It is true. I'm, I'm a freshman. I shouldn't be here. And he was like, oh man. And so he called the school. The school was already looking for me because I knew that I signed in to class and then I just poof, I disappeared. So they're like, where's Alex Foster? Like what happened? And then he had to, he, he looked at me and he was like, man, this is serious, Alex. Like they're talking about like expelling you, you know, as academy. Right. And I thought, well, well, that's not good. Like this was kind of an accident actually. And I had a it's great crazy time. crazy how severe yeah. people, people take like life choices when you're a kid. I mean, it sounds so nonsensical when you're an adult. Yeah, it is. It was stupid to me. I mean, I, I went, I know it was kind of a fluke, but I actually learned a lot. 
and I talked about books the whole time. But the long story short was Mr. Humphrey called me into his office later that day. He sat me down and he said, well, Alex, I have some good news for you. And I was like, what's that? And he said, I managed to talk them out of like expelling you. And I said, oh my God, thank you so much. And then he laid this piece of paper across the desk and he was like, take that. I took the piece of paper and it was Times 100 Best Novels of the 20th Century, the whole list. Time Magazine's Best Novels of the 20th Century. So I was like, what do you want me to do with this? And he said, I want you to read all of them. I said, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. For the next four years, read all these books as much as you can. So I was like, all right, sure. So from then on, I would, uh, you know, I actually, I was a very shy kid kind of. And so I would always skip lunch. I never ate lunch in school. And instead of going to lunch, I would go to the library. I'd take out these books and I would read them. And admittedly, and it's kind of fucked up, I stole a bunch of books from the library. Like I'm talking like a hundred books. A <laughs> hundred books? Yeah. Like I would go in there with a backpack. I'd have my friends create a distraction in the study hall hallway right outside the library. And, uh, so the librarian would go over there and then I would just fucking go in with that backpack and I fill it up like 20 books. But the thing is like all the books that I've ever stolen, I've given back or I've given away to other people. So like, I just don't really own them. I just kind of tried to pay it forward. Yeah. That was my fucked up psychotic logic as a kid. But anyway, I read almost every book on that list and come time to graduate high school. I barely made it because they took so many points off my grades. Um, even though like, on uh, my SATs, I scored top 1% in the country as far as reading and writing comprehension skills. So, you know, that I had going for me, but I didn't want to go to school. I worked at a college since I was 14. And I actually lived there with my college girlfriend at the time in their dorm room. So I got the college life in a way when I was in high school. And I wrote all these projects for people for like beer and pot when I used to smoke weed. So I was essentially like ghostwriting even when I was in high school. And I remember before then, when I was in grammar school, I used to write my brother's, my high school brother's book reports. I would read his books and write reports on them for him. So, but he didn't give me anything. He probably just didn't beat me up as much, you know, in return. So anyway, that's how that started. And then I promise I'm almost at the end here. And then when I was 19, I built with a friend of mine, a solar powered tricycle. And I decided I was going to take that solar trike across America. I'm sorry, a, a solar-powered tricycle? Yep, you got it. Yeah, so we built a solar trike. I had a trailer. It was wild, man. Yeah, and I drove that thing like 55 miles one time through like foggy weather, um, overcast sky, and I got to my mom's house where I was driving the thing, and it still had a full charge, 55 miles. Ultimately, though, sadly, I crashed the thing on a big hill, Wait, wait, I got so many questions. <laughs> what is a solar power? Are you talking like like a like a big, like adult version of a tricycle with solar panels that push oh, yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 55 miles you drove this thing? Yeah, I did. And this was back in 2000 and, uh, 2012, 2011, 2012. I can guarantee you I'm going to go the rest of my life and no one is ever going to say that shit to me ever again. <laughs> no, no one is ever going <laughs> to, we're never going to have that conversation yeah. ever again. It's, it's a weird talking point for sure, you know? It's, uh, but I have videos of it, man. I got, you know, pictures and I was on the news and stuff. And I researched for like a year, all the top luminaries in the fields of social and environmental change. I, I wanted to do a, a movie about how we could change our world, like for the better. And I was going to be this trying, trying to be this living example by driving this trike 
from the coast of Maine, the northeasternmost point in the U.S., to uh, what was it, Nia Bay, Washington, complete other side. I would have died for sure. Like a Mack truck would have fucked me <laughs> up. So that would have killed me. So in hindsight, it's good that I crashed the trike and I was poor. I didn't have the money to fix it. So one one night I just decided, fuck it. I packed my backpack. Uh, I left my house at like four in the morning. It was still dark. It was winter time. I started hitchhiking and I hitchhiked across most of the United States and I had some crazy wild adventures in many states, you know, and oh, a lot of adventures. That's part of the book that I'm writing, I guess. But I managed, I landed in Los Angeles. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't get to skip over all the fun stuff. The hitchhike. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> like you got to, you got to give me some of these stories. All I mean, right. When you're hitchhiking across the U.S., there's got to be some weird shit that you see. Oh, my God. All right, let like, me take a sip of this whiskey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got I got to get a full rundown of like just a highlight reel. I'll give you the highlight reel. All right. So one po- at one point, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I kept my buddy Dylan DiMartino and I were trying to hitchhike from the on-ramps, which was legal. I had a whole printout pamphlet of everything that was legal and illegal for hitchhiking in each state. Oh, dude, I was prepared. That thing was like tattered. And it was in my like, in my, uh, what was it? I had like a map of the U.S. And this, like one of those things you pick up at a gas station. So anyway, I keep trying to hitchhike. And the cops keep coming over and they're like, yo, you can't do this. And I said, well, actually, and I like looked for the paper. I was like, it says here, article like 22 section. And they're like, no, 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 no. I don't care about that shit. You can't hitchhike from here. I was like, but, but. And they're like, no, no, no. I don't care. Get in the car. I will drive you to a location where you can hitchhike. And I was like, well, okay, well, at least that's cool. And driving Pretty somewhere. but, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little weird. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it was a woman. I felt safe unless she, you know, she had a taser on her. But, like, I felt good. Got in the or car. A gun. Yeah. yeah and, uh, she did have one of those <laughs> hard plastic seats. I've never been in the back. That's a lie. I have been in the back. Of the car. Yeah, I've been in the back. It's not fun. It's not fun. It's really, it's like intentionally uncomfortable to make you upset. So anyway, we did that and they dropped us off this random place. It was not a good place to hitchhike. We kept roaming around and we're in like a McDonald's or something. And I was just going over a map and I was like, Dylan, what the fuck are we going to do, man? We're trapped in here. We have no money. I don't know what to do. And this dude who's uh who got a Sprite, he's this little like five foot tall, bleach blonde, haggard looking road tramp you know one of those like seasoned hitchhikers like you know just callous fingers smelled like cigarettes uh his shirt looked like it was leather but it wasn't it was like a it was just a a flannel shirt but he'd worn it so many times it was like calcified almost anyway he came up and he was like you boys doing some traveling i said yeah we're trying to we're trying to get out of this freaking city he's like well my name's silver bear iron legs and I will protect you and I will take you where you need to go. And I was like, oh shit. And I like looked at Dylan and I was like, all right, this guy's name is Silver Bear Iron Legs. He's going to help us. What do we do? And Dylan was like, uh, deer in the headlights. So I was like, all right, Silver Bear, like, what do we do, man? And he told me about this special like route we could take to like, we had to cross a highway, blah, blah, blah. And we would go to this perfect place to hitchhike out of the city. I said, okay, let's do it. Uh, so we start walking. And immediately things start to go wrong. Uh, this guy was trying to sell marijuana just on the street corner. And we were in like a really bad part of town now. And he was like, yo, you, you guys want, you want me to hook you up? You want some want some weed? And I was like, oh, no, that's okay, man. Thank you. And Silver Bear was like, I'll get some crack. 
And the guy was like, motherfucker, I don't, I don't got no crack. Like, who are you? Who the fuck are you asking for crack cocaine on these streets? And I was like, oh, shit. This is a big dude. And Silver Bear was like, he was like, I just want some fucking crack, man. And he was messing, though. He didn't want any crack at all. And so I basically got in between these two. And I was like, whoa, 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 he's just got a weird sense of humor. I'm sorry about my new friend, but he doesn't want crack. And the guy was like, well, you want weed? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get some weed. So we bought like a joint. Silver Bear took it. Anyway, we kept walking and walking and walking and night fell and it was a real bad part of town. As I said, we heard like gunshots, sirens, people screaming. Uh, we went past this this block where it was like all prostitutes and they were trying to like solicit me, ask if I wanted to, you know, give them business. And I was like, no, thank you. Really was, was, wild. I'm assuming Silver Bear was interested. Actually, he wasn't. He had like tunnel vision, man. And he kept saying to us, and it turns out in the Sprite, it was all vodka and Sprite. We didn't know that, but that he was sipping that thing the whole way. And he kept looking at us. He was like, don't worry, boys. I'm impervious to drive by bullets. I will protect you with my life. Iron legs, man. <laughs> yeah, he's the man. So ultimately, we, uh, oh, dude, it was wild. Like, we had to cross one of those giant, like, four-lane highways. So it's like, what was it? No, 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 sorry, it was six. So it was like two lanes. No, no, it was four lanes and then four lanes. So it was eight. You know what I mean? Like four does that make sense? Yeah, no, it just seems like a long way to go in the middle it of the night. It was Drunk food, yeah. Yeah, it was in the middle of the night. We crossed two four-lane highways that were back to back like this. And we almost got hit by a car. We were like hanging out in the median. They're flying by, beeping at us. We ran and crawled through this hole in a chain link fence. There was this dude in a trailer and he came out and he was like, what the fuck are you doing on my property? We're like, sorry, man, we're, we're leaving. He's like, I'm going to get my gun. And I was like, run. So we ran, we jumped a fence, a dog started chasing us. I lost my taser, which was in like my, one of my backpack pockets. You just so normally like, carried a taser around? <laughs> no, not that, that, was road, that was road safety. Like, <laughs> is that what it was? <laughs> I figured it would be a good idea. Um, lost it. But anyway, long story short, we did not get to where we needed to go. We slept in the back of this like abandoned attorney's office in this really bad part of town. And I remember going to sleep that night and Silver Bear was twirling around this giant like Bowie knife, like expertly, man. And he was Wait, twirling you, around. You guys actually like went to sleep with this Silver Bear Iron Legs dude rolling around like in the same area as you? That's the thing, man. I was terrified. I didn't want to sleep. Like I trusted him on some level, but then I knew he was crazy. There's so, no way in hell you would get me to trust some dude named Silver Bear Iron Legs who was drunk trying to get cracked. Yeah. <laughs> that I dude, just met. Is, like, that's just Come on, I, don't, I don't believe in myself, you know, I, I don't understand how I get in these situations, but I do like all the time. Um, but anyway, like he, yeah, he showed me this knife. He's like, you boys want to see a trick as we were like settling. It was so cold, man. We were trying to go to sleep and we we're like, yeah, sure. And so he, he holds his hand out in front of us and he like snaps his fingers and there's a fucking knife in the hand. It's giant. And he starts spinning it around his fingers, twirling it around his fingers, his wrist he used it on. And like would make it disappear. And then he would bring it back into vision. It was like dangerously close to like Dylan DiMartino, my buddy. And I was like, all right, we are going to fucking die tonight. Like we were going to get murdered for sure. So I tried to be vigilant and stay awake the whole night. And all I remember was like, the last thing I remember was Silver Bear sitting in the total darkness with that little ember of his joint just glowing in the darkness. He was like, don't worry, boys, I will protect you. And anyway... I tried to stay awake. I fell asleep. We woke up at like six in the morning. 
Silver Bear was gone. We never saw him again. Don't know what happened. But he did. Poof, he, did he take your shit? I mean, were you get you get he robbed? Took nothing. He took nothing. He was just gone. Yeah. That is weird, dude. Super weird. I know. Silver Bear Iron Legs. Watch, he's a billionaire. He's out there crushing it right now. <laughs> like, we always uh, we would joke that his name was Silver Bear Iron Cock. I don't know yeah. why. That yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, Luckily, we didn't get that far with him. Jeez. So, yeah, I know. You, if you found out, we would have, a, <laughs> have an entirely different conversation right now. Yeah. So, so you guys are hiking. You're hitchhiking across the U.S. You're in Atlanta. You, you're going to Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to. Well, at that point, we were hoping to go to San Francisco, but we ended up going to L.A. Okay. Yeah. How, how did, and what did you do when you got to L.A.? So, well, we managed to get out of Atlanta because the the uh, nonprofit that I was affiliated with for this trek, it was called Trek to Change the World. Um, a bunch of people came together and sponsored us, like saved us. And we took buses down to uh, Florida. Different adventures ensued. We hitchhiked like through the Panhandle and through Texas. We One ride, we got like 800 miles in a day. It was like 14-hour drive. We got a wait, whole wait, ride. So you got to LA, got sponsored, and then came back? No, no, sorry. I just meant the way we got out of Atlanta. Oh, we, okay. You know, I was already sponsored and all these people like made donations to this 501c3 I was affiliated with. And so we, we were able to take buses out of the city, but then kept hitchhiking. And we, I landed in LA, literally not a penny to my name. I knew no one in the city. And I was in a cafe and I was like reading about the homeless situation. And this number always stuck with me. It was 51,340 homeless people in LA County right there. It's a hell of a lot more now, man. It's oh, I crazy. It. And it was just, it broke my heart and they're everywhere I looked. And I was a pretty sheltered kid, you know, growing up in Maine. Homelessness wasn't that prevalent here. So it like broke my fucking heart. Also, it, I was homeless too. So I was living on the streets and I lived near Lincoln Boulevard. I slept by this golf course at night because they had this like tarp over a chain link fence. They were doing some work on, on the outside of the golf course. So like I would always sneak in there at night. And anyway, I met a lot of the homeless and I decided I was going to make a documentary about the homelessness in LA through like an insider's perspective, like living on the streets with these people. So I would, I would meet a lot of them. I befriended a lot of them. And I learned about their, I learned their stories and I filmed them. And um, I actually eventually got a job like waiting tables and being like a bartender. I was 19 at this uh, Argentinian restaurant. And what I would do is I took all my tip money at the end of the day and I'd go to the 99 cent store. I'd buy a bunch of groceries. On my way back to my little homeless like encampment, I would hand out food to the homeless people that I encountered along the way. Like some people had their favorites, like chocolate milk, honey buns. One dude loved chocolate soy milk. So I got him that all the time. That's what I did. And I did that for months and uh, it was a extremely life-changing experience, but then it like, it went bad, you know? Um, at some point I was, uh, well, uh, shit, man, I don't know how much I want to get into because I don't want to make this, you know, <laughs> what we got, like how much time do we have? Anyway? Well, we got all the time, we all the time in the world. I mean, it's just, this is, this is before the age, this is like 19 years old. This is before 20. Yeah, it was 19. I mean, you're a kid. What the fuck do you know about the world at that age? And then nothing. So, wow. All right. So let, let, let's let, let's just keep going then because, you know, you, we're here. You're, you're doing this and things go bad. And and at some point, like you, you get into the writing space. 
I mean, damn, you've already got a great story to write about as it is then. But so how, how did how did all that turn into a career? I mean, how did all this and this passion for books and this travel and these, these people that you met along the way, this desire for this document, how did all that wind up becoming a career in writing? A really good question. Accidentally, I would say. But this all, all these experiences kind of culminated in this career, in this life that I have now. And I think maybe a lot of people say that, like, you know, every single thing that happened. And it's going to be in the book that I just got a book deal for, this memoir of my time with John McAfee. Uh, who died? And, well, can you can you fill everybody in on, on who he is? I think a lot of people like I know who he is from the business world, but I think once people f- hear out, figure out who he is, they're going to recognize they know that name. John McAfee is the uh, creator of the eponymous, uh, eponymously named. I think I'm using that word correctly. Uh, it's his namesake, McAfee Antivirus Software. I know I'm a writer and I fuck up words still. Yeah, I, I can't spell, and I'm a lawyer, so there you go. <laughs> See, so he created that. Um, and he was basically the de facto antivirus guy. And uh, he came to like world fame, I would say, 2012-ish, when his neighbor in Belize, Greg Fall, was found murdered. And he was wanted for questioning over that murder. And so John McAfee, this tech titan entrepreneur kind of madman, he went on the run. And he evaded police like brilliantly. He was actually the most brilliant person that I've ever met. And... Aside, um, aside from me, right? Oh, obviously. Of course, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't catch, I was winking, but, you know, for all yeah, this. Yeah. Well, you know, was, nudge, nudge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, he and he had this crazy media, like, firestorm that happened because it was just the perfect, like, Hollywood-esque story. I remember like, it. It was everywhere. I mean, it, he was a very, like, well-known name, and he was a huge, huge net worth, and, like, that turmoil was sensational. It was huge. And so that's that's kind of what catapulted him into infamy. And then he ran for president. Um, he's been on the run a number of times. He, he died uh, last June in a Spanish prison over, like, I think, tax evasion charges and other stuff. And anyway, he was my client. He was my, my writing client for six months. I lived with him. I traveled the world with him. I became closer to him than I think any other writer ever has. And so anyway, I'm writing a story about my time with him. And it kind of also includes the memoir elements that I was just telling you about. So to answer your story, your question though, the way I became a ghostwriter. So that thing happened in LA, something really traumatic happened, kind of fucked my life up, you know, like it actually literally like splintered my personality. And I was, that all happened when I was in climbing this, like the wisdom tree in LA, up in the Hollywood Hills. And all of a sudden I saw everything for exactly what it was, you know, like a, a car was seven gallons of oil in every tire, a bunch of resins and plastics and petroleum. So all these like dead, sorry, all these living things that were killed in order to produce a dead thing, like a fucking car or a building or a skyscraper. And I, I just saw like death everywhere I looked. So I had this sort of mental breakdown. I lost every sense of who I was. I just didn't have like an identity. You know what's crazy is a lot of people live in LA and you can see that in them, but they just get so numb to it over time. That's why a lot of people leave Los Angeles is they feel like, you know, you just get so into this dead cultural lifestyle and it's this very cyclical pattern of behavior that unless you're at the upper echelon of, it can become very toxic to your personality, right? God, I noticed that too. I feel like I downloaded all of it at once, like in one moment. But long story short, 
uh, two and a half years, I was kind of mad. And I was just traveling the world as a somewhat homeless vagabond. And like I lived in Europe, I lived in South America, I crisscrossed the country. It all culminated with this trip along the inside passage to Alaska. And I was with this like super narcissistic, horrible, like rich couple that were just really mean to me, really terrible to me uh, on this like 80 foot yacht. And I worked like 16 hours a day, every day, weekends too. And I was at sea for four months and I was mad. I was crazy. And I realized like I was either going to make it or break it. I was going to like jump off that boat because I didn't know how to swim. Some beautiful cove somewhere and never like. Who goes on a boat for four months and doesn't know how to swim? Idiots, man. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <clears throat> yeah. I was, it was stupid, but. That's a lot of my life. No, it's, it's just unique. It's not stupid. It's just it's just different. Yeah. All right. So, but I meditated like every day. I, I read The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale uh, every day. And I read it probably like 40 times that season. And I remember like it was weird, but in my weird madness state, everything that I saw it looked like I was looking through a fisheye lens. And I was afraid, literally, dude, every moment of every day. Every single moment I had that fight or flight impulse, it never left me. It was so debilitating. You think it was the, the time at sea and that like, you know, just being isolated or, or do you think it was like literally maddening because you you were just going through your thing? Like what, what, was, what was driving that? Yeah, this whole thing was two and a half years. Every moment I shit you not, this fight or flight feeling never left me. Two and a half years. It was like not sleeping for two and a half years, it felt like. And I, you know, I said, you know, it was a make or break journey. I was either going to come back a whole human being or I wasn't. And I remember I did all four months with this crazy abusive couple, 33 years of their sailing. Not one person had ever stayed a full season. So I did. And I got a bonus. I got like, I, know, I, I landed on the shore with like 12 and a half grand in my pocket, which was more money than I'd ever had in my life at that point. And I remember stepping out in Puget, Puget Sound on the dock and looking around at skyscrapers, the cars, the planes, all the bustle of activity that would normally terrify me. And I wasn't afraid. And I kept walking and I was like, this is weird. And I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid that day or the next day or ever, any other day since then. And it was that day I decided like, I want to try to become a writer. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do, but I got 12 and a half grand and I'm going to sit here all year and I'm going to write. So I got my old Smith Corona typewriter out. I wrote short stories. I wrote a novella. Then I kept writing and I kept writing. And I kept writing. I wrote a book and I was in a cafe and uh, this woman sort of discovered me. Her name was Kathy Pelletier. She's, uh, I think she was the first woman in America to get like a, a million dollar advance for a book. And she was a New York Times bestseller, like very. And she just walked into a cafe and, and you were there and like that was. I was writing a book, you know, I was doing like the. Huh. 17th revision of my memoir which i was writing at fucking 21 years old it was just beyond me why i was doing that but i was and when you were 19 you were talking to you know steel like <laughs> over there whatever his name was yeah silver bear iron <laughs> yeah, silver bear yeah <laughs> uh, but she looked over my shoulder and, and she said oh are you writing and i said yeah i'm trying to and she said can i check it out and i was like sure so i handed it over and she started reading and she looked at me and she started reading i was like super nervous and then she said you wrote this? And I said, yes. And she said, how old are you? And I said, 21. And she like, her eyes went big and she said, kid, like, I don't say this often, but I'm impressed. And her friend standing next to her was like, she's right. Like she never says that. And then 
Kathy said to me, she was like, she said, I'm a bitch. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bitch. Like, I'm really hard to get along with. Like, I, I tell the truth. And her friend was like, yep, she's totally a bitch. She really is a bitch. And Kathy said, uh, she ended that statement with, but really, this is very, very good. You got something, kid. You got something. And she kind of became my mentor. She's a dear friend now. And she, she kind of instilled this confidence in me. I became an editor uh, very soon after a defunct indie publishing hybrid weird shit thing called book trope back in the day. And then one day I was working on a lobster boat with my brother, who was a captain. I've had so many jobs, but I was doing this with him and, and I got an email when I got home from someone and I thought it was a spam Nigerian prince esque email. And it was like, Hey, I, I loved your work on main writers and publishers Alliance, which is his blog. And I published some of my work there he said, would you be my ghostwriter and write my story for, I'll give you money. I was like, fuck that. You're ridiculous. No one gets paid to write. Are you kidding me? That's like James Patterson and Stephen King. And like Jody, I can't pronounce her last name. I'm sorry. But like all those people, that's, that's yeah. not. They were like four and they got yeah, they're like yeah. three or four. And I was like, that's ridiculous. So I deleted it. I was like spam. And then it haunted me, man. Over the next couple of days. Busting my ass on that lobster boat 15 hours a day, uh, like throwing up, man, because I get seasick, which is another problem when I was on the boat for four months. You can't swim and you get seasick? Yeah, it was a perfect oh, storm. Like, what? Unintended. <laughs> oh my God. I know. It was bad. So I, it was haunting me. And I thought, what if it was real? Because if that was real, perhaps that would change my life. And you know what? That email changed everything. I went back, took it out of spam, wrote him back. He was for real. Uh, drove down to Portland, got the first check, 2500 bucks. It was an $8,000 gig to write his memoir. Guy turned out to be a kind of a narcissist and a sociopath. Three months in, he's, he wasn't paying me for a whole month of work because he said, oh, it's coming, it's coming. But I was in Italy, got my second client. His name was Prince Stanislaw uh, Klosowski Dorola. He's a prince. Um, his father was Baltus the famous 20th century uh, painter. And anyway, I was in this castle with this guy. God, there's so much to unpack there. Okay. I'm almost done. I promise. You're in Italy in a castle now. Yeah. With some guy whose name I can't pronounce. Prince Stash. We can call him that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So exactly. I found him on a documentary on Netflix and he was a guy, a prince who used to tour with the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. He was there when John Lennon created the song, uh, love is all you need or all you need is love. And he he told Paul Simon that his song, when he was writing it, The Sound of Silence was shit. And it made Paul Simon really upset. Like, this was the dude. He had a threesome with Mick Jagger. Said Mick had a really tiny penis. The girls loved him. All kinds of shit. And I was like, this guy's fascinating. So I offered him to work with him and write a book proposal. Get us a book deal. So I fucking flew out there, man. I had like 2000 bucks in my bank account. Spent half that on flights. Stayed at his castle for 10 days. Wrote a book proposal. And it was on the flight home. When I got news that when I discovered basically in my notes from this current paying client that he had at one point plans to murder his ex-wife to gain custody of his kid. I was like, this won't stand, man. This won't stand. So I said that. I was like, I have a really big problem with this. Like, we need to talk. And he was like, oh, it's okay. You're fired. I was like, what? All right. Well, you still owe me like two months of back pay. He was like, no, I'm not going to pay you anything. And dude, I was so broke. I had like I quit my lobster job, moved to this town on this island, and I was relying on that money. And I got really 
I got really stressed out. I got sick. And then like, I was like coughing and sneezing a lot. And I blew like a hernia through my stomach. I went to have surgery and, um, dude, it was so bad. I was so poor. I didn't have insurance. So they sent me home. They sent me home without anything. Like you're usually st- supposed to stay there. It was a very intensive surgery. They cut through a lot of muscle tissue. Yeah. yeah. It's like a C-section. I, they, yeah. I fucking, they kicked me out during a snowstorm and we were driving home. It took three hours to get home and every pothole in these shitty main roads, we would hit it. My muscles would seize my stomach and therefore the most unimaginable pain would occur. And I ended up like, dude, I was like dry heaving. I was, I was throwing up and I had nothing more to throw up. So I was dry heaving every time we hit one of those potholes. And each time I would tense up, like it was like this cyclical effect and I would keep doing it and doing it. And it was bad, man. I thought I was going to die. So I was lying in bed for like three and a half weeks. I could, the, the rent was due. I couldn't pay it. And I thought, man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I have no paying clients. Like I had one client and Prince Stash and I were still waiting on feedback from agents and shit. I don't know when I'll get paid with that. And I had a decision to make. And I was, you know, I remember James Patterson and he had a coterie of ghostwriters, like 20 of them. And I thought, well, I'm not going to write for James Patterson, but what if I write for the next James Patterson? So I started doing all this research into some of the top best-selling Amazon authors of the last like couple of years. And I created this list of like 10 and I wrote to all of them and only one of them wrote back and it was Stephen Leather. He was the second best-selling British Kindle author in the world at the time, second to Lee Child. And he wrote the Jack Reacher novels and shit and a big deal guy, you know, really cool British dude. And anyway, he was intrigued because he's, he was busier than ever. And so I, I offered to work with him and he said, you know, let me see your work. And he saw it. He's like, dude, this is really good. Why don't you publish? And I said, because it's a lot harder than you might think in America here. Like it's, I'm not making, I'm not putting food on the table. And so he hired me. So I wrote like a series of novellas for him. He paid me like a thousand dollars and I'd whip one out, dude, in like two hours. So I was getting like $500 an hour for my work. So I wrote a bunch and they all became number one Amazon bestsellers and they, went beyond like Stephen King. It was in the thriller horror genre. They're ahead of all like Stephen King, like all those other authors for like four months. So it kind of created a name for me. I had a little bit of money to get by. Then I just like optimized my, I created a website, optimized my ad account, became obsessed with SEO, figuring out how to turn it into a business. And I did. And then that worked well for a couple of years. And at some point, some agencies invited me on. So Gotham Ghostwriters invited me on. Wait, no, no, no. I applied. And then Reedsy invited me personally to to be one of their like 100 ghostwriters around the world. Or I think it was like 50 or 60 at the time. Now there's like 120. So I did. And man, I haven't advertised in like five or six years. I get a steady flow of work. And I've reached a point where like I bought a beautiful home. I bought this log cabin home in my favorite place in the entire world you know, and I make a six figure income, you know, and I, I'm very happy. I'm very grateful. I'm really, what I would think is kind of smart with money since I learned how to fuck that up so much when I was a kid. That's, that's what being a kid's for, man. There's yeah. a time and place for it. It's when you're a kid. But that's it, man. That's it in a nutshell. That was a 40 minute answer. I'm sorry, but that's how that's, it, Are you I, kidding me? That That's the best 40 minute story I've heard on this podcast yet. I, I think that <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to hear a story like that anytime soon, man, but I, I can't thank you enough for sharing it. And it's, it's crazy to think that all those 
paths as, as schizophrenic and bizarre as they may have been led you to where you are today. Uh, but before I let you go, let, let's tell everybody where to find you. If they want to find you, you're out there on social media. Like where, where, where should they go to find Alex? Sure. Uh, they can find me. I don't really use social media a lot, but I do have Instagram. So Alex Foster Ghostwriter. And that's it. You type in Alex Foster Ghostwriter. That's me. You find my website, all the cool projects I'm doing now. I'm going to be in this Netflix documentary soon, which is going to be a weird experience. But I'm going to talk about that on the blog. I'm revamping the site right now. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's where you can find me. <laughs> well, luckily, I know that you know that you got some exciting projects in the works, some of which you can't talk about. But I think you're on the precipice of, of a significant breakout. And speaking as a friend, man, I got to tell you, I, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. The, the stuff that, that you've endured, that you live through, the stories that you tell. I, I mean, obviously, you and I have told many stories over the last couple of years together, but I, I'm so happy this is all happening for you. And it's going to be really awesome to see the next year and how it all coalesces. So hopefully when it's all done, you come back on. We talk about some of those projects and some of the exciting things you're doing now. I would love that. And thank you, brother. That means a lot to me. All right, yeah. buddy. I'm glad to be here. Well, until next time, okay? Next time, buddy. Talk soon. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you were listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.